G'day mate, 40 here. So we are now going out live over Odyssey. We are going out live over Twitter. You're going out live over YouTube. Going out live over my Facebook page and my Facebook profile. So I want to talk about uh, Kanye West's trajectory. And, and what's more important in life? Is it capturing attention or is it winning? Is it uh, being effective? Is it being righteous? Is it telling the truth? And of course, in some situations, capturing attention is the most important thing. If you're mounting a theatrical production in some situations, what's most important is that you probably capture people's attention and you hold people's attention if you're a live streamer, right? And you want the, you know, you want the highest number of views, you want to make the most money, then Probably what's most important is you capture attention and you hold attention. Now, here's the struggle. The primary way that you capture attention and hold attention is by being interested, not in being right. So if you are passionate, if you're giving contrarian perspectives, right, if you're high energy, right, if you, you know, you're really feeling what you're saying, then you are going to compel more attention, you're going to sustain more attention, you're going to be more successful as a live streamer. But all those qualities will tend to come at the expense of being right, being accurate, uh, being fair, being pro-social, being good for people. So perhaps the highest rating show I ever did was the Saturday Night Massacre with Jim Goad, Nick Fuentes, uh, Baked Alaska, Bids and Bidley, and you know his his uh, you know, fellow Bids and types, and it was an entertaining show. It was a compelling show. I, I don't think it was necessarily terrible for you, but it, it would be impossible for me to argue that it was uplifting. So uh, Richard Spencer in high school, he wanted to be a theater producer, a theater director. And so I think he analyzes these things primarily in terms of their theatricality and does it compel attention. And so I I find Richard's perspectives interesting. And they also give me something to bounce off of. I I tried on Friday, like playing excerpts from Steve Saylor's recent uh, podcast interview with Alex Kushuta. And uh, Steve just speaks in this sane, measured, middle of the road, commonsensical, careful accurate way and there was just nothing really for me to play off of i didn't really have anything to add and uh, ricardo my my good friend ricardo was here and so it, it's so important as a live stream is to have you know, someone to bounce off of and so when i was doing my, my streams with ricardo or when i have ricardo in the chat you know he gives me so much to to bounce bounce off it's like if you're trying to hit the ball out of the park it helps if the pitcher is throwing it at you at 100 miles an hour when i've got ricardo around he often throws the ball at me 100 miles an hour. And so if I can connect with what he's saying, I have a much better chance of hitting the ball out of the park as opposed to me just like tossing the ball up in the air, right? And just hitting it myself, right? The odds of me being able to hit, you know, a ball out of the park when I just toss the ball up and then hit it is like 0.01. But if I have someone, you know, throwing it at me at 100 miles an hour and, you know, I, I happen to connect, then the odds of me hitting it out of the park are like 5%. So Ricardo says, Ye is winning so hard that Cardo and Halsey are resorting to accusing him of being gay with Nick Fuentes. If that's not a desperation, I don't know what is. Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of trying to discredit people on the basis of their, their race, their religion, their, their sexual orientation. That's, that's not 
something that uh, I, I usually do, I would like to think. And so when we talk about is Kanye winning, I guess we're talking about with which demographic groups, All right? With people who graduated from university, you know, Kanye is not winning. With people who want to, you know, have prestigious positions in society, Kanye is not winning, right? With university professors, Kanye is not winning. With people working in NGOs, Kanye is not winning. With people working in academia, in science, in the high ground of culture, in, in the news media, in entertainment, Kanye is not winning. But with the like the Nick Fuentes Groiper crowd, right? With maybe a large segment of the populist crowd. So by large segment, I'm meaning maybe up to 20% of the populist crowd. Then yeah, I think uh, Kanye is winning. So which demographic are you talking about when we talk about is Kanye winning or not? And Richard here is giving incredibly compelling perspectives on Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. So let me pause. Well, I, look, I, it's amazing. I mean, I don't, I, I have no, I, I was kind of at a loss for words listening to it. I was pretty much down on that whole thing after what I had seen. And I thought the whole Tim Pool appearance, he seemed to watch. So one of the best ways to title a stream or to do a stream or to do a blog post or a Twitter tweet is to say, I was wrong, right? There's something compelling. When, when someone says, I was wrong, that kind of grabs your attention because it is so you know contrary to how people normally operate. So usually the most successful, most compelling people who talk about themselves are those who talk about themselves in terms of where they were wrong. So Richard here is being... They're compelling. He's being interesting. He's commanding your attention because he's starting out essentially by saying, I was wrong. So if you're a YouTube live streamer or a blogger and you want to grow an audience quickly, just hammer on that theme of, you know, I was wrong. And another variant of this that a lot of radio show hosts do is to ask, do a show around, am I a bad person? Because, and then X you you confess to say you're repelled by fat people or you lied to your mother so that you could you know, spend more time with your mates, right? That's a way of compelling attention. Walk out for no reason, you know. Um, and so I was kind of like, look, you got to go out there and tell the American people what you're about. You you can't just walk off sets. And I know Tim Pool is horrible, but whatever. Uh, then I, I got a notice that it was playing. And so I was just doing some chores and, and I was, the whole thing is riveting. And yeah, I know a lot of it's kind of crazy or stupid and it's not, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but it was just an absolutely riveting experience for two hours. And what was kind of opened up, I mean, this just raw energy. I, I did feel a lot like 2016 um, in the sense of there, it's, it seemed to be more things seemed to be possible. It was like just a opening up of discourse and there was a little bit of craziness in all of that, but I think sometimes that could be good. So, I mean, Again, it's kind of beyond me, but I, I, I think it was it was just an amazing experience, and I, I really couldn't believe that I was watching that. I mean, Alex Jones got left in the dust by what Kanye was doing. Alex Jones was like in the Ron Paul era, and Kanye is just like, you know, pushing forward with this, you know, I love all people, but especially Nazis or whatever exactly he said. It was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I think this was an historical event in the sense that this, this was a, a happening, a moment that everyone's going to have to address. I think the GOP is going to run away from it. I, I think they're going to have a hard time denouncing it because by denouncing it, they're in, in a way denouncing all of their voting base. And so I don't think they will be able to do it. 
Um, you could definitely argue that. Okay, this is fascinating. This is fun. I, I think he's totally wrong in a lot of areas. But you know, Richard Spencer is a historical character. When they write you know textbooks about uh, the years 2015 to 2020, like Richard has a very good chance of uh, being in there. So let me give some more analysis. Cool appearance. Replay. He seemed to walk out for no reason. You know. Um, and so I was kind of like, look, you got to go out there and tell the American people what you're about. You you can't just walk off sets. And I know Tim Pool is horrible, but whatever. Uh, then I, I got a notice that it was playing. And so I was just doing some chores and and I was the whole thing is riveting. And yeah. I So riveting is, you know, helpful to winning. Right. We're, we're operating in an attention economy right now that. I have been given the privilege of your attention right now. I mean, that's that's huge. Like in, in daily life, how often do you get to speak for 30 seconds without someone interrupting you, right? Quite rare. It's quite rare that someone will listen to you for 30 seconds without interrupting you. So I can go on YouTube and I can speak if I have something to say, you know, uninterrupted for two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I can you know, play off other people's clips and go for three hours fairly easily. That does not happen in real life. So riveting attention, that is a component of winning, but it is not sufficient. And sometimes you can rivet people's attention in a way that's ultimately you know, bad for you and bad for whatever cause you're espousing. But winning or losing, you know, good or bad here, it depends about with who? What demographic? You know, a lot of it's kind of crazy or stupid, and it's not, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but it was just an absolutely riveting experience. So sometimes being crazy is is a winning formula. Again, it depends, you know, in what group. If you're going for a job interview, being crazy is not a winning formula. If you're applying for a loan at a bank, if you're applying to join some prestigious group, right, being crazy is not a winning formula. Occasionally, Right, being crazy is a winning formula, such as in the realm of public performance. Experience for two hours. And what was kind of opened up, I mean, this just raw energy, I, I did feel a lot. Yeah, when you are honest, when, when you come from your heart, when you're authentic, right, it doesn't mean that you're right, doesn't mean that you're true, doesn't mean that you're good, it doesn't mean that you're righteous, but it does make you far more compelling, right? When you step aside from say what is expected. So for example, if I was to speak in a predictable way of speaking, such as if we were at a coffee shop, I would be speaking where my voice would be going down as I approach the end of my sentence, right? That is the normal way of speaking. But to compel your attention, I have to speak so that my voice is ascending, it's going up in pitch as I go through the sentence, right? If I'm speaking like this, in, in real life, people are much less likely to interrupt me. But if I start speaking like this, people will jump in because I'm going down in pitch. So compelling attention, that can be a key component. Like 2016, um, in the sense of there, it's, it seemed to be more things seemed to be possible. It was like just a opening up of discourse. And so Richard's keeping, you know, fairly you know, above average pitch and notice how his voice doesn't you know, drop down. He's not taking long walks down the staircase when he talks. So in daily life, you'll notice people tend to walk down the stairs in their pitch when they talk, when they come to the end of a sentence and you turn tune out. What you want to do is compel people's attention by suddenly rising in pitch and by saying things that they're not expecting. 
right? You can't just do the predictable dropping down, walking down the staircase. Generally speaking, that's not a way, but you need to be ascending in pitch, but also ascending in what you have to say. You need to be giving something people, you know, something out of what they're expecting and then you're much more likely to command their attention. And there was a little bit of craziness in all of that, but I think sometimes that could be good. So, I mean, again, it's kind of beyond me, but I, I, I think it was, it was just an amazing experience, and I, I really couldn't believe that I was watching that. I mean, Alex Jones got left in the dust by what Kanye And we all want, you know, amazing experiences, right? We, we tend to live alone, like, much more than, you know, any other time in American history. But when people go to a game, right, 90% of the time, they're going to a game with someone else. So I got up at 2 a.m. to watch, what did I watch? What was the soccer? Oh, uh, Morocco stunned Portugal 1-0. Just an amazing match. At uh, 4 a.m., I went back to bed, back to sleep, uh, woke up at 5.15, went to the, the Kuji Sports Bar to watch the 6 a.m. Sunday time. All right, so I'm speaking to you right now. It's 10.05 a.m. Sunday morning here in Sydney. And I show up at 6 a.m. the same time I showed up a week ago to watch Australia versus Argentina. Showed up at Coogee Sports Bar. Apparently, it, it, it was full at 4.30 a.m. for England versus France. Right? People want a collective communal experience, particularly desperately. That's why there was so much public mourning for the death of Princess Diana and the death of Queen Elizabeth. Right? There are fewer and fewer things available today where we can have that collective experience. So what a lot of you know, distant right-wing movements offer is a return of the collective experience. Sports is one of those rare opportunities for a collective experience. So you know, I left the comfort of my place here in Sydney, and I went down to the Coogee Sports Bar and sold out. So I had to go across the street to the, the cafe, and 100 people were kind of crammed in the cafe watching a sport telly. All right, the same size of the telly as I've got right here. But we were doing it to have have a collective experience. And, you know, America doesn't have like a strong union movement, doesn't have a strong uh, socialist movement. Uh, America doesn't have a lot of collective experiences. Neither does England, right? And so, you know, why are people you know, getting together to go to sports because 90% of the time you're going with other people, right? You get to have a public experience together, which is far more energizing. You feel far more alive when you get to experience something with other people, even if you're just kicking a ball back and forth, and even if you're just, you know, marching in place. So let's have a look here. What do we have in the chat? Elliot Blatt, welcome. Blessings, Luke. How are you doing? You're awfully chipper for 5 a.m. Uh, thank you. It's now 10 a.m. I, I almost never have coffee, but I had a large, it's called a flat white, which is, which was two shots of espresso, I think. But no, flat it was, white? Yeah. Uh -huh. That's what they call flat, you know, coffee white? with milk. <laughs> not white, white. Not white, yeah. but just, it's called a, a flat white uh, yeah. with one sugar. So yeah, I normally don't, no, don't drink coffee. So even though I got virtually no sleep, uh, mm -hmm. I got my rare cup of coffee. So I'm chipper. Yeah, well, it's good to hear. It's good. I can feel the rising pitch in your voice. Ah, oh, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> hey, I, 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 I've been generally not interested in this whole World Cup thing, but I was curious about the England-France game. Did that already go up? Oh, yeah, that just finished. And England lost it. it, it they had two penalties where they could have at least 
kept the score even. But Harry Kane, the the, the best English striker right now, he skied the second penalty, so England lost two to one. Oh man! Like heartbreaking, uh, like last minute. Yeah. Yeah, this similar scenario unfolded a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, in the, in the European Cup, the the yeah. last three English players who happened to be black all missed their penalty shots, and mm. England lost to Italy. I would have liked to have seen that England win. That's too bad. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was recording it. I was recording it mm. with my phone because most most Australians seem to be supporting uh, England. And yeah. I was recording like both both England's penalty shots on my phone, the crowd reaction, and but on the second one he missed, and so what the heck? The French, the French are easy to hate. <laughs> I don't know. They really make it hard to like. I mean, they have some nice stuff and whatever, but I don't know. Um, you know, I went to France like two thousand and eight. I just couldn't get over how consistently unfriendly they were. Just. Yes. I was disappointed. Yes. yes compared thought... to Americans or Australians. And they also rip you off. Like if you get in a taxi, they will, you know, drive around in circles to maximize your bill. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't know. It just seemed to be brooding all the time. You know, there's that yeah. French brooding thing, you know, and like I, uh, I had to, I was skiing, right? And I had to have like my skis fixed or something. And so I went to like a little ski shop there. And this guy, he's French, of course, and he had like this giant scar on his head, you know? It was just un, it was impossible to miss, you know? And he looked so sad, you know? And the scar and then the sad, this, his general demeanor and plus the scar just felt like you were dealing with this. Um, I don't know, this monster of sorts. And I really felt bad for the guy. So I did this American thing where I gave him a tip. He did it. He fixed whatever had to be fixed. And I gave him a tip. And I think it was the first tip he'd ever received in his life. He was like, uh, he just <laughs> exploded with like uh, gratitude. I, yeah. I don't know. It was a funny experience. Yeah, gratitude is not, is not a quality that one tends to associate with the French. No, no, no. And they still have these these quirks, like they 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 um they have a slightly off way of dressing, you know, like a big sweater, like a just a giant ugly sweater to wear while skiing, skiing. <laughs> and then they smoke, like they still smoke unabashedly, which is kind of fun, I guess. Contrast. Ah, that's it for my travel stories. Look, I didn't mean to derail you. But what about the need for collective experiences? You don't feel that almost ever, as I understand it. Do you, do you recall when you last had a, a in-person, yeah. collective, powerful experience? Um, do I recall it when? No, I mean probably in Boston when I was really into the Red Sox and the Red Sox were winning a lot, you know. But I told you about this. I had this sort of like epiphany about the futility of it all, you know, like, yeah, it seems like you're having experience. What's really happening is you're having a solitary experience, but everyone else is having the identical solitary experience. So it seems like there's something more happening, but there's really nothing happening. There's nothing really happening. Your team, a bunch of strangers you don't know, did something great on the, on the 
athletic field. And it really doesn't change your life in, in one iota. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Just the lack of meaning finally caught up with me. And I just realized I'd been engaged in some sort of um, delusion. So I stopped pursuing that. As a, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest. I can't recall any significant connection I made from uh, going to a, a sporting event. Yeah. Or, or, you know, going to a sports bar, which, you know, I've done, I think, three, four times in the last uh, 20 years. Yeah, I told you my New England Patriots 2002 experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I recap it, but this <clears throat> the Patriots won. We're watching at a bar. Everyone's ha ha, yay, yay, Patriots win. As I'm walking home, I'm giving the very ultra condensed version. This, uh, it was a super cold night. This was in Boston. And this, SUV passes me and then slams on the brakes. And then people got out of the car. Like I thought they were going to be, uh, you know, they, they were going to rob me because I have been robbed in Boston, by the way. And so I thought this was just, here we go again, type of thing. And then the, the driver in his Boston accent yells, the fucking New York, no, the fucking New England Patriots have won the fucking Super Bowl. And then <laughs> they jump back in their car and drive off you know so uh, there was just like a moment of terror so i don't have you know my experience of of like you know collective athletic victories isn't it's not unmitigatedly positive but do you do have you had any powerful collective experiences for for example going to yoga you can do the identical yoga at home by yourself but if you do it in a group of five ten twenty or more people the odds of having a powerful experience as well as making significant connections are you know, dramatically higher when, when you do it around other people. So I've, I I disagree. Okay, go ahead. I totally disagree. I was like, so like way back when I used to go to this hot yoga, you know, they had this in Boston. Yes. It was kind of a fad, you know, and um, this it was in Porter Square and it was, like they would pack you into this room. I mean, mm-hmm. cheek to jowl. I mean, you just, they got you into like sardines, you know, which already starts to rub me the wrong way. Cause I like a little space, you know? And so it's a, so that's part one. All right. Strike one, strike two. Of course, it's ridiculously hot. I don't really enjoy being hot. In fact, I'd rather be a little bit cold if I had my drums. So I hated that. Right. And then finally, so it's the the actual yoga class starts and they're doing, you know, up and down and downward dog and all this stuff. And I happen to be like in back of this dude who's like wearing like shorts with no underwear, you know, and like he does this move and I just get this giant glimpse of his ball sack. And I'm like, ah, oh, God, I'm not feeling spiritual, bro. So, so that's my experience of collective. That sums up. All of my attempts at collective experiences. Wow, that sounds. But what about? Aren't you in a gay swimming club? <laughs> no, I'm in a casual um, scene where people swim. But like the women involved, try to make it a club. You know, they're into t-shirts and structured activities and so forth. And to me, it's just like I hang out and I chit chat and I swim here and there. But there are gay members of the uh, of the club. That's to be sure. But uh, that's my 
closest I come to uh, like a collective activity. And I haven't really done it in a while because I've been sick for like six weeks. I've had this really persistent uh, respiratory issue. I don't know if it was COVID or something, but it's really cramped my style for the past six weeks. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I think collective, yeah, it just never quite works out for me. But, but what about going on this show? Don't you sometimes feel energized? This, to... Yes. Now, this I did, but I did have a question. So last week, I think I called in and, um, you know, I, I told this long, you know, sordid story that really didn't go anywhere. And when I left the call, I just think I, I, I came away feeling like, oh, no, man, I, I really kind of blew it there. I just kind of chewed up all of Luke's time, you know, and. That was a bit self-indulgent. I was really feeling bad about it, you know? And then I looked in the chat and like Colin Adele's in the chat and he's like, this is compelling entertainment, right? Or something. This is compelling yeah. content he wrote, which I took to be really sarcastic. Like, oh yeah. So that just like doubly like reconfirmed my perception that, you know, it was just not a good showing on my part. I I'd really like, uh, I'd really like taken too many liberties. So I was just feeling like a little tinge of guilt throughout the week. And then later on yesterday, I think the day before you, you made reference to that, to my appearance and you said it was a good appearance. So I, I was, I, I don't know. I was heartened by that, but I honestly don't know how to interpret how that went. What about ever? Do, do you ever feel energized after participating in a live stream? Yes, I do. Can you tell me Often. about those? Times? Often. Yeah. Tell, well, tell me more. Like I feel, if I feel like I got a point across, you know, a, a subtle subtle and meaningful point across, I feel like, you know, I come away with feeling this is a success. It was a, uh, when you feel success. like you've contributed. Yes. When I've, yeah, I've contributed and that uh, there was something, you know, there's something at least semi-memorable from the, from my, my appearance. Okay. So yeah, a feeling of contribution gives you energy. It gives you positive feelings. It gives you strength to carry on. It's like yeah. you've you've lit up someone's life. Yeah, you've given them strength, strength to, to carry, carry on. Strength, well, strength to carry on is a bit overstating it. It's like I'm not coming to it like, oh man, I need strength to carry on. Like, you know, but, I dude, you light up my life. Like when you come on this show, I mean, so many nights I sit by my window, like waiting for someone to join the show. There, there's so many dreams that I keep deep inside me and I'm alone in the dark. But now that you've come along, you, you light up my life. You give me hope to carry on. You light up my days and you fill my nights with song. I always got the sense, I always got the sense that I, that's what I did to you, Luke. Now I, thank you for that confirmation. I mean, I'm rolling Speaking. at sea. I'm drifting on the water. Could it be I'm finally turning for home? It's like finally a chance to say, G'day, mate. Never again to be all alone. Sorry, go ahead. It can't all be right. wrong Speaking. when it feels so right. Go ahead. Speaking of lyrics, speaking of songs and lyrics, and this was potentially an insight, potentially, or it's just nothing. But ordinarily, when I go to Whole Foods, you know, they've got like a PA system and they play music over it. All grocery stores do this, right? But 99% of the time, you go to one of these stores and over the PA is some sort of 
like it's either like a Motown song or um, it's like a rockabilly song. It's never, it's never, the music just, it's always in the background. It's something I have to endure and nothing that I really like, you know? And, but, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I go into Whole Foods and they've got um, Don't Go Back to Rockville by R.E.M. playing. Do you know that song? I don't. Looking at you, watch it third time, waiting in the station for a bus. You don't know that one? It's kind no. of, it's almost country. It's almost okay. country, right? But it's so catchy. It's a really catchy song. And I remember hearing that song, you know, they used to play, uh, they used to play the radio on the school bus, you know, and that would be always, and I would always be so excited when that song come on. And it's got this very simple refrain. Don't go back to Rockville. You know, you, you must have heard this song. Maybe. It's a, it's the quintessential Generation X song, Luke. And I know you're an Xer and you should know this. And so I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, like, then I'm walking around, you know, I'm getting my onions and my potatoes and I'm throwing them in the basket and I'm sort of singing, don't go back to Rockville. You know, and I don't normally sing in like public places like that. Yeah. And so it was just, you know, four minutes of like, wow, enjoying the experience, enjoying the um, um, shopping experience, you know? Yeah. And then I'm thinking, what's, why did this happen? Why would this never happen before, you know? Yeah. And then I started reading into the situation, right? And perhaps erroneously reading into the situation. But it's like the Xers are taking over now. Now's our time. The boomers are going, they're receding from history finally, right? And it's the yeah. Xers music. They're the people that need to hear their music while they're shopping, right? No more, no more flower children, no more 60s, no more Motown. It's the Xers. And we're back, baby. It's our time. What do you what do you think of that analysis? Yeah, it's true. We're in our peak earning years, man. Yeah. So, isn't culture going to start molding itself to our whims and our predilections? Well, I mean, as boomers retire, they're, they're going to have less influence. So... Yeah, the boomers are now gumming, you know, vanilla pudding out of styrofoam cups. You know, it's us, Luke. We're in our prime. We should be seizing the the, uh, the 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 reins of governments. So goodbye, Trump. Hello, DeSantis. Exert power, bro. Yeah. You and, and and do you notice what if any? What are the significant differences you notice between uh, baby boomers, Generation X, and then what what comes after us? What's the next generation? Uh, I think. It's, or is it Y or Millennials? I think Millennials come immediately after Xers. Or is there is there like a gap generation? Okay. I'll find Let's out. See. I'll look it up here. Generations. So I'll look it up. Why don't you tell me what differences do you notice between, say, Generation X and other? Um, well, so here's here's the way I look at it. Okay, I've got the answer. Generation X, X, anyone born between 1965 and 1980. So I was born in 66. Baby boomers, anyone born from 46 to 64. Millennials are anyone born from 81 to 96. Generation Z, anyone born from 1997 to 2012. Okay. 
So yeah, we're we're firmly and solidly in the Xers in our prime. Uh, Xers. So the way I send it is like, if you were an Xer, you're more likely to have at least. It's less likely. Okay, the chances of divorce are high, but still, the dominant uh, pattern was that your parents were generally together through through high school. But their divorce was there's a lot of latchkey kids, a lot of single parent kids, but it wasn't like the catastrophic numbers that they were now. So Xers are basically well adjusted, but they have like a few quirks and um you know emotional problems <laughs> associated with um sort of disintegrating family life. Whereas Millennials and beyond, that whole thing was trashed. There was no. That's one way to look at it. So they say Xers are ironic, right? Irony is the key defining um, characteristic of Gen Xers. And I don't know, like Daria. Remember Daria in the 80s? That cartoon? No, I, I never watched cartoons. I know. I didn't either. But I, I knew who Daria was. Um, they'd say that um, she was this sort of ironic figure um, you know, standoffish not willing to commit to anything you know but quick with a with a with a one liner and what, what does a what does an extra mean to you i you know, I love to analyze and, you know, divide people up. And, you know, I love these type of tools, but I've never gotten into generational differences. That's never spoken to me nor seemed a powerful tool for analyzing life. For example, IQ is such an incredibly powerful tool for understanding how the world works. You know, I don't know of any other social science tool that is you know, one-fifth as effective as IQ. Uh, meaning IQ over a large number of people, not necessarily on an individual basis. I've just never found generational analysis compelling. Um, I can see where you're going. I mean, IQ for sure is incredibly powerful. And it was like, you know, like uh, like I mentioned before, it, it was one of the big red pills of the uh, 2016 on era of the internet. That was... Um, you know, I remember being like 19, and I think it must have been Rushton, but Rushton had, is Rushton from England? Uh, he is. Uh, Jay Philippe Rushton, the the psych, psychometrician who writes about group differences. Yeah. Yeah, he was originally from South Africa via England and uh, Canada. Okay. <clears throat> well, he, uh, he had written a book and I had just tuned into a, uh, uh, a radio station, you know, it was like this, the local left-wing radio station. Mm -hmm. And um, they were discussing this book and they were apoplectic because yeah. he had basically, you know, made some race and IQ yeah. uh, observations and these were not politically correct. And they were just beside themselves and going out of their way and trying to refute Rushton. And, 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 and you know, you know, I was listening very passively, but I was, listening well enough to remember that that's what they're discussing and 
there was a real strong emotional need to, for them to push this, to, to A, embrace this argument and push it under the rug, right? And I basically, from that day forward, had sort of followed that lead, you know, and said, oh, this is a whole, this is quackery, right? And I just mm-hmm. put that in the quackery category. And I hadn't really reopened it until 2016. And now having done that, you're right. It just explains so much of what we see. Yeah. And uh, if, if there's anything else you want to add on Generations, by all means. If not, uh, do you have any thoughts on the Kanye West, Nick Fuentes ongoing drama? Uh, I think this will be forgotten in 30 days. I, 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 don't, th- I don't think this has legs. I just don't think there's enough substance there. I think everyone kind of sees it for what it is. And I think Kanye himself is going to be sick of this because it's not bringing him the the dopamine that he wants. And uh, I just don't see it lasting that long. I think it's going to be eclipsed by events, Luke. And how do you divide up, say, your live stream or podcasting consumption between uh, merit versus compelling and dramatic because often the most compelling and dramatic is least meritorious and the most meritorious is the least compelling and dramatic or do you think that's not accurate uh it's probably accurate uh merit meaning substantial right yeah yeah Uh, yeah yeah. substance um Probably fifty-fifty. Yeah. Um, I, you know, a certain. It's sort of like choice of music. You know, you want a certain mood at a certain time. Yeah. Like I listened to Kino Casino last night. I thought I thought that delivered the goods. I mean, uh, that a certain... is a compelling, entertaining show. I mean, those guys really know how to live stream. Yeah, they do, and uh, uh, I, I, like I said, it's for passive listening. Though it's, it's a key thing. It's not like I'm looking at the screen. It's having something on while doing something else. And um, uh, it's just better. It's listening to that is better than listening to some funeral dirge about the feelings of transsexuals uh, when they go shopping. You know, Uh, it's just fun entertainment. And it has like this spicy sauce of social commentary, but it's ultimately not that important. But it's. I, I, I view it completely in uh, entertainment terms. And it, but it's, it's done really well. I mean, those guys really know how to live stream. I mean, tremendous amount of energy and mm. preparation. You can see that they do a lot of preparation for the show. Tremendous amount of energy. I mean, PPP in particular. I mean, he is just off the charts. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, he... I think he's very he's very intelligent. It's too bad he's so morbidly obese. But um uh yeah, he knows yes, he has analysis he has an analysis and he does do the prep and that's all apparent. And he just kind of carries Worski along. But Worski Worski's kind of like some chimpanzee that just kind of can be counted on to react. And I think that's mm-hmm. an important comment is like to have the just this sort of lizard brain type to do the sort of guttural reactions, but it's PPP that's bringing the uh, bringing the IQ and bringing the um, 
bringing the, the context, the content, yeah. and, and the homework. And, and notice this is a very common dynamic with successful podcasts. They have one person, like the the podcast that tracks Alex Jones obsessively from from the left. They have one mm-hmm. guy who does all the homework and, and preps mm-hmm. everything and, and writes down his notes. Then the other guy is simply reacting fresh, and it it's a really good formula. <laughs> yes. Yes. Another another uh, duo that I like is um, Anthony Cumia and uh, Gavin McGinnis. Mm-hmm. They they pair up, and these things yeah. come across my feed. And they have a <clears throat> they have a really nice really nice dynamic between the two of them. Uh, they're both frank. They're both funny, uh, and they they're both. I think what sets like a good a good uh, podcaster, a good presenter, will be is very attentive to cliches and how yeah. to avoid them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're if 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 you're not a good presenter, you fall back on cliches because yeah. they're comfortable. Yeah. But if you are, if you have high IQ and you're aware of what you're saying, you'll do what it takes to avoid a cliche, and that will keep your. Uh, your presentation and your speech fresh, right? Because it contains, yeah. if you avoid cliches, then you're, there's an element of surprise to what you have to say. Whereas yeah. if you just repeat yeah. cliches, it feels like you're just driving on a country road that you've driven many times before. Yeah, like That's why I can't listen network, to network. Network news. Right. Yeah. Network TV, like network, yeah. even Tucker Carson, I can't even take it anymore because it just, it just feels like the output of a formula that, I know from word one what's going to unfold and how it's going to unfold. And and even if I agree, I just don't like that formulaic feeling of knowing what's going to happen, you know? So. Yeah, and Anthony uh, and Gavin, they make you think because they're so honest and because they don't bow down to the pieties and to the cliches, they often make you think, often in uncomfortable ways. Yeah. And they always, what I like about them, they always are able to tie back their opinions to a particular experience that they've had. And they yeah. relate, they illustrate their points from their own experience, Yeah, which I think is like a critical uh, element of good storytelling. Yeah. You know, before the internet, um, you know, my group of friends, like, Telling stories was a big part of our camaraderie, right? And we would sort of like, uh, we would compete with each other on how well we could tell a story. And that, it was a really fun way to live, I have to say, you know. Uh, And I'm just thinking about like certain stories that are told me. Some, this guy, Michael, Michael Malutis, I should probably not dox him, but he would tell a story and like you would feel like you were there. Like he he would bring out certain details and he would tell the story with such emphasis and so forth, and like you'd literally feel like you were there, and like the punchline was as if you were there. You know, it, it's like uh, he really had a talent that way, and uh, I, I think that whole art firm. I think Livestream brings that back, but that was missing. For, I think that's missing from a lot of people's lives. Uh, just having a gang of friends and being able to you know, tell stories. And that has to be done, that has to be done skillfully and intelligently because there's nothing worse than listening to someone's self-indulgent story or someone's story you've heard heard before. Everybody hates that. Exactly. Exactly, Luke. And like, 
And if you did do that, if you did venture into your own sort of self-indulgence, you know, you'd get a program, serious program yes. from you, you know, <laughs> which, which I don't think people can handle now. I think it, because they don't grow up, these, these uh, millennials and these uh, Zoomers, they didn't grow up with like two parents. They, they, they grew up playing video games. They didn't have, I don't know, the social, I don't know what it is, but they can't be criticized without them freaking out, you know? I remember when Ricardo first came on this show, he came on this show to trash Dennis Dale for apologizing too much. And and so yeah. one of the, the great things about live streams is that because you, you don't personally know most of the people in the chat or, or even come on the stream, like you and I have never met in real life, there's more room for people being honest. So people can just, you know, spout out, you know, you're lying. I don't believe you. This is boring. And so you get, you get a level of honest feedback that you don't tend to get as much in real life, except in those situations you describe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, I'm really grateful to live streaming for that. Cause I think that it's bringing that back. Um, but I think it's even better done in, in person. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I do remember like the, the chess scene in Boston, you know, there would be a group of people when we would, we would all gather together around the tables, someone being playing chess, but others would be telling stories. And it, it was good times. And how are you enjoying Twitter these days under Elon Musk? Um, <laughs> I'm enjoying it on many levels. Uh, but I did have a thought today that there's this um, unfolding of all of these documents about... Um, what do they call it? The, the Twitter files, you know, how the former Twitter staff was, were shadow banning and so forth. And we, you know, all knew it, but somehow it's like this new fresh outrage because that we actually have the documents and we have that we have the, uh, we have the receipts as they say. And, and I, I just said, yeah, that's all true, but it ultimately doesn't matter. You know, because it's not like anybody that's, you know, you know, any liberal is going to say, oh, wow, there are the documents. I guess you were right. I'm sorry. You know, the 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 error of the apology is gone. Nobody apologizes. Nobody, nobody backpedals. You know, they just simply just go, whatever. You know, this is the this is the this is the problem with the internet culture. If you're called out, if you're um, if you're shown to be inaccurate, your opponents can just say whatever and move on, right? I, I guess that part of it's lost now, and that's a really hard part of life. Like, if that was part of the, one of the big lessons that you learned, like if you make a mistake you apologize. And I think that is what keeps a society together. And I think the internet with its um, uh, segregating people into their own tribes has sort of uh, liquidated that ability from a lot of people. Yeah, but but people still shift at at the margins. So yeah, the convinced ideologue is is, less likely to apologize. But if these Twitter revelations continue and display more, more substance, I do think that uh, some people will be affected. Uh, 
I hope you're right. It'd be interesting to see how it unfolds, but it's not like I'm hanging on every word to say, oh my God, Trump was right. Oh my God, they were shadow batting. You know, the... Okay. These are new, these are just not new revelations for me, you know. Um, Well, what is interesting, this uh, woman, Vijay J. So... um, She's getting a lot of uh, notoriety these days, and it's funny to see. She yeah. was making $17 million a year. Can you believe that? Wow. That's like, it's more than a million dollars a month. Kids, what would you do if you made a million dollars in one month? Would you quit your job? Uh, yeah, I'd probably take a lot of vacation. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. <laughs> Just these sums of money get tossed around these days are just completely eye popping. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's this uh, financial columnist who's quite a prestigious uh, bloke. His name Janan Ganesh, and uh, yeah. the Financial Times is very expensive subscription. It's not one that I shell out, but some people do because there's, there's so much compelling content. Anyway, he just wrote a very brave column. He says the real reason to get off Twitter isn't abuse it isn't misinformation it's that it reeks of low status twitter does yeah i thought that's really interesting i mean that's really brave to say that uh that uh he says you know twitter's conducted in a certain voice and a certain home key it's kind of twee or, or beta you know, there are quaint you know bios and cultural references to science fiction or superhero genre. There's, you know, social awkwardness, self-mockery about bad dates, a lot of jargon, kind of like, you know, a pub on, on a quiz night. You know, there's a sense of people finding camaraderie and having no better options. And, and the humor on Twitter is the humor of consolation, basically, for losers. That is interesting. Isn't that um, brave? Isn't that a brave thing to say? Yeah. So I, I just, let me tell you a little story. Um, like a week or two back, you know who Moby is? He's like this musician, he's big in the 90s. Yeah. And he posted some tweet about, that's it, I'm leaving Twitter forever, blah, blah, blah. You know, one of those. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm moving to Canada if Trump wins type of um, performative uh, 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 exhibition, you know. He, he says this, and then it just, and I, and I barely ever treat and I barely ever reply to tweets but I said well I'll be here when you ultimately come back something like that a very quick half you know not deeply considered just a quick response to this tweet and then all kinds of people start liking this tweet and every time somebody likes a tweet you get a little notification on your phone yes you know MAGA 2024 in Wisconsin liked your tweet, you know, <laughs> like it keeps clicking off and off and off. And then I, I got over 500 likes. No way. Tell, <laughs> tell me again. What did you tweet? that got 500 likes. That's unbelievable. I, I Okay. You want me to find the exact wording? Well, I, <laughs> I guess I can also pull it up. Uh, how, how recently is uh, this? Uh, this is like last week. Okay. Um, oh, Elliot, you're smashing it, bro. What? You've, I mean, the only reason that it's because he was a celebrity, right? I replied to a celebrity and other people. I think it's not a function. It wasn't a particularly insightful. Holy moly. Wow. You found it? No, I, I thought I did. And then, 
Uh, Let me find it here. Uh, how do I do this? More. Oh, don't worry. Here, here. I'm going to play some of Richard Spencer and just stay quiet until you've found what you're saying. Okay. okay. Oops, no, not that one, not that link here. Wait, wait, here we go. It was doing Alex Jones was like in the Ron Paul era, and Kanye is just like, you know, pushing forward with this. You know, I love all people, but especially Nazis or whatever exactly he said. It was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I think this was an historical event in the sense that this, this was a, a happening, a moment that everyone's going to have to address. I think the GOP is going to run away from it. I, I think they're going to have a hard time denouncing it because by denouncing it, they're in, in a way denouncing all of their voting base. And so I don't think they will be able to do it. Um, you could definitely argue that, you know, Kanye didn't articulate things in the best way possible, but I don't know. You, It's never going to be perfect. I think sometimes there's just these moments where like a new dawn arises or, or, or like there's a portal to a new universe. There's just, there's just a moment when things dramatically change and more things are possible. And um, I think we might have witnessed that last night. It was pretty incredible. Now, what about the media fallout? We were just watching a clip with uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, of course. And... So I can't see it, uh, Elliot, but uh, I'll, I'll I think I found it. it. Okay. Okay. All right. I wrote, to, I replied to, to Moby. Uh, I'll be here to remind you of this when you inevitably come back. Oh, That's all okay. I wrote. Okay. That's all I wrote, right? Okay. 537 likes. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. There is a formula for success. Like Brittany Pettibone was analyzed by this uh, Dutch researcher, and she rose to prominence on the basis of Pizzagate. And so she was very good at using hashtags. I've actually never used hashtags. And she was very good at tweeting at people with more followers than her. To, to get attention. So there are certain tried and true formulae for growing your social media status. Yeah. But I came to the conclusion. This is, I want no part of this. Yeah. I don't want to be Twitter famous. It's nothing I want anything part of because it's just so interruptive. Like having 500 individual notifications every time some bozo somewhere clicks like clicks the little heart icon. Um, but you're guess, in control. I, you're in control of your notifications. Like I, I, I've got mine set, so I don't get bothered by that. Yeah, but okay. But what? Okay. What do I have to gain by being internet famous? Right? Like, why would this be a um, objective of mine? Why would I strive for this? Oh, because I, I'll just you know I've had some experience of internet fame, so. Here are the things I've gotten out of it. I've gotten money. I've gotten mm-hmm. opportunities. I've gotten to meet people. I've been flown to different places in the world. I've uh, gotten dates and love and you know things that happen when you date attractive women. Uh, I've got. I've heard from people who I used to know decades ago and, and fallen out of touch with. And there is. It's like currency. You walk into a room and people are more likely to want to talk to you. Okay. But, I mean, you put a lot of effort in it. A lot oh, no, of it was just uh, it was just all natural talent. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I guess, I'm not saying it's not rewarding, but, like, if it's, it's just sort of grafted on to your sort of mainline activities, you're going to, mm-hmm. it, it's just a distraction. 
you know, if I was selling something or, or, you know, the fame could sort of be translated into some business success or something, yeah, then I guess it'd be worthwhile. But that's just not the case for me. I'll tell you that the number one reason I wanted to become famous was I, I knew there was a way out of my chronic fatigue syndrome. And I just knew that there were people out there who had an answer. And I thought if I could just become better known, I'd be more likely to meet the people who can help me overcome things like chronic fatigue syndrome that I can't overcome on my own. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, you, you, I don't know if you've ever had a sense like that you're mired in something and that there are answers out there that will work for you, but you have this kind of sinking feeling that you will not be able to find them on your own. Maybe that's not your experience. Yeah, I've had. yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, don't you think there's a lot of stress that comes along with yes. being a you know, public person or semi-public person? You got to deal with trolls. You got to deal with a logs. You know what an a log is? <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, an a log is somebody that sort of targets you for uh, revenge or reprisal. So, so like a, it's like it's like a notch above troll. It's like somebody who hates you and sort of uh, is so obsessed with you they they sort of go out of your way to either to make your life miserable. Yeah, I've I've always had a sense that how I conducted myself would have an effect on how people reacted to me, not controlled. Right? You know, yeah. I understand I can't control other people, but I I've always believed that if I approach things in a, a truth seeking way and with an appropriate level of humility, and if I like call out when I get things wrong, not that I have to be perfect at any of these, but I think if you approach things, your online adventures in a, a, basically honorable way that you considerably minimize the chances of the kind of blowback that you just described. And that is my experience. So the so, more honorable I conduct myself, you know, the less of that unpleasant blowback I've received. Yeah. I mean, you do like have a, you do bring a certain humility to your streaming. So I think the, uh, the number of a logs that you trigger, you provoke is just to, is proportional to how arrogant you are. So if you're a very arrogant person or a very crude person that antagonizes people in a very rude way, you're going to attract A-logs. So like Ralph and so forth, they <laughs> attract some really committed em enemies because he does not exhibit a lot of uh, humility. Right, um, as long as, I, I mean, I got on the internet on an ongoing basis, July 3rd, 1997, and pretty much from, from day one, when I became aware that I'd made a mistake, I corrected it as quickly as possible and, and generally speaking, made you know, a public you know, declaration, I, I got this wrong. And I find people respond positively to that sort of attitude. Yes. Now, that's, not, that's one thing that Richard, I don't think, has really done. He's just kind of changed right. course. He hasn't. No, he hasn't. Like, he's... He's damaged people's lives. Like I, you know, I've damaged people's lives because I, I put out information that was unfair or inaccurate. And you have to, it, it, to really move forward and to be in a, on a positive trajectory in life, you have to confess that publicly and be open and honest about it and you know, seek to, to make some amends. 
Yeah, do you think he's sort of like overcorrecting now or something? Like, and he, he seems to have like outright antipathy towards his former alt-right. Uh, well, I think he's highly acolytes. theatrical. And, and yeah. so the more dramatic your change, the more dramatic it is. So I think he's very interested in being dramatic. And, and for me, to the, to the extent that I understand myself, there are a lot of values that I put higher than creating drama. So yeah. I really want to be right and accurate and truthful and have either a neutral to a positive effect on anyone watching. All right. Three hours ago, Elon Musk. Twitter is both a social media company and a crime scene. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, Elon Musk does have a tremendous sense of drama. So yeah. he, is, he is very Trumpian. Yeah. He's a... Uh... Probably the most effective Amer- African American you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you think of Owen Benjamin? I uh, I like him. I mean, he's nuts, but he's a very harmless kind of nuts. Yeah, and uh, I don't think he's really done anything terrible. Uh, and he's sort of, um, you know, he's kind of living. He's He's putting into practice. He's he's backing up his words with the practice. You know, he's living this rural life in Idaho or something, and he's um, he's walking the walk. So, I I think he got into like flat Earth kind of shit way back when, yeah, which is obviously unforgivable. But I, I think he's <laughs> mellowed out to a certain degree. I don't think that's sustainable over over time. I have this self-destructive impulse, which I don't think you share, but I think I do share it with people like Richard and a lot of other live streamers. Pretty much my whole life, I have had a significant voice inside me that says, what is the thing that I can say right now that would maximize the amount of attention I would get? And so I, I have felt that drive and that voice inside me pretty much my whole life. And I think that people like Richard and and Nick Fuentes also feel that. I, I suspect that's not a voice that has particularly bedeviled you. It, 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 I had that voice, for, you know, like in high school and mm-hmm. early adulthood, you know. Um, and I was that guy. I was the class clown. I did like to uh, attract attention um, and be at the center of attention, you know. Um, but I slowly turned away from it because... I don't know. I'd get a lot of I'd get a lot of blowback, and I just didn't enjoy yes. the blowback. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it got bullied out of me, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> it was the yeah. healing power of bullying that. Uh, yeah, that's a. It, do you do you get Netflix? No, 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 no. I don't okay. have a TV, Luke. You can get Netflix on the computer. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you've heard of, uh, is it Jonah Hill? He's in movies like yeah. Superbad. Okay. So yeah, he yeah. just made a documentary about his psychiatrist. It's called yeah. Stunts. And there's a lot of really good stuff in it. So uh, number one, the psychiatrist doesn't believe in just, you know, listening and being passive. He believes in giving people tools for immediately improving their life. So number one tool he gives people is get in touch with your life force. So number one, you know, get in touch with your body. So, you know, exercise, eat right, sleep, 
you know, get, you know, get physical. Uh, number two, you know, get in touch with other people. You know, make, make an effort to go out and you know, make appointments to see people, socialize with people. And then number three is to develop a kinder and more productive relationship with yourself. So I thought that was powerful. But another thing he said was, you know, ring every bit of insight you can get from, you know, every interaction, every life lesson, like every failure. You know, don't be afraid to just ring every little bit of insight. And so I, I don't know about you, but often when I'm humiliated or when I fail, I don't want to hang out there. <laughs> I, I, I want to kind of ignore it and, and move on as quickly as possible, put it out of my mind. But I like his insight that, that you should just, you know, try to wring every little bit of insight that you can out of your failures, out of your humiliations. Yeah, that, that sounds, yeah it sounds like, a, it all sounds like good advice. I have been trying to meet people, you know, and I did have an interesting um interaction so the person um so like i you know i told you i'm doing like this on this book business thing side on the side mm-hmm. you know? and so i sort of hired this kid this 21 year old kid to help me out with you know because a lot of lifting and so forth and you know I, I just can't lift all this stuff up and down three flights of stairs so i so i hired this kid to uh help me out and you know we couldn't be like more different you know like He's 21 for one thing, but he's from Brooklyn. Uh, he's probably an Octoroon. Well, felt like this <laughs> person. Spencerian term. And um, that. And, you know, so, I, you know, I try to talk to him. I just try to, like, try to relate to him. But, the, like, the, just the, the, the foundation, our foundations are so different. You know, we end up sort of just talking past one another and not understanding each other and so forth. And, doesn't really matter (laughs) but anyway so i'm driving with him and then he tells me like uh in my life i don't know how this topic came up but he says in my life all i really deal with are catholics and lesbians and i'm like that's compelling (laughs) so i said well what do you mean you know and then he says both my parents are lesbians wow yeah. They said they're both Catholic and they're both lesbians. And I said, both of your parents are lesbians? So he's living this life that is like just a meme, right? Yeah. It's just it's there's like actual people living this lifestyle. They're just they're not sort of caricatures that you see on the internet, but there's because uh, he's you know, from all intents and purposes, he's he just seems like a normal guy. You know, but, you know, I had to sort of suppress my troll. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was I was like. Um, I had to, uh, you know, play along. Right. And try and tease out some information about this. Meanwhile, uh, I, internally, I'm just collapsing inside. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, you know, how, this is just like not me. I don't want to know about this. Right. And. uh but apparently, you know, father left the mother, mother becomes a lesbian, now both his parents are lesbian, blah, blah, blah. But this is just this, the whole sort of corrupted family structure that's being, that's been normalized, that is just much more normal than it used to be. And 
it is actually real life. Wow. So anyway, so anyway, why don't I socialize with people? Why why do I avoid people? It's because experiences like this. Because I don't have anything to say. When someone says that like that, I want to be alone. I just want to go be alone at that point. I don't want to talk. I don't want to open up. I don't want to engage, right? I just want to disappear at that. As soon as that that happens to me, that's my reaction. To tie it back to what we were talking about. Wow. But but sometimes you do feel the need for the social connection, but you you meet that primarily through live streams? Um, well live streams, but um, I mean, my work, you know, I have mm-hmm. at least one meeting a day, sometimes four meetings a day, you know, and it's not really socializing, but it is, there is a social dimension to it. Uh, I don't like it. I hate it. Um, uh, but by the time I've done that, I've had all I need of people for <laughs> for a day. <laughs> That's not mm. you, huh? Uh, but Luca, I don't see you. I, I mean, obviously, you're out there taking these long, lonely walks around the beach in yes, Australia. You, you exactly. don't seem to be like, um, I don't see you carousing. You go to a bar, you're going to a bar alone. You're not really, you know, out there with your with, with your blokes and hoisting beers and going, oi, oi, oi. I think the primary reason that I talk about human connection so much is that it's somewhat of a foreign territory for me it's because i've suffered from a lack of it that it's become an obsession with me also because i I notice how much stronger i I feel and how much more effective i am at navigating life the more connected i am so I, i don't speak about connection human connection because it's the water that i swim in okay here's something to chew on um your ability to be a good friend is directly proportional to your ability to be alone. How does that well, strike you? Uh, I think there's like 50% truth in that, that if you're not at ease with yourself when you're alone, that you're, yeah, you're not likely to be a great friend. But the amount of alone time that people need is going to vary by the individual. Like you need, I think, much more than average. Yeah, that's true. Um, Unless you're at ease with yourself, you're not going to be a a blessing to other people. The more disturbed you are standing on your own two feet, the more of a menace you're going to be to others. Like that, that's like the, the, the most profound change that I've made in my life in the last 10 years is I've put more and more emphasis on maintaining a state where I'm comfortable and at ease with myself. And I am not, you know, obviously a paragon of this. You saw how awkward I was at that at sports bar last week. You know, I really have to work on this. You know, I have to meditate. I have to take the cold showers, you know, exercise, sleep, you know, do a whole bunch of things to try to maximize being at ease, but I know that when I, the more comfortable I am with myself, the less likely I am to act out in an antisocial manner. Okay. Um, well, when you go on these walks, and they're they're considerable walks, like two, three, four yeah, hours, 10, right? 10 to twenty miles. Yeah. Um, that's what 
up to four hours, maybe even longer? Oh, yeah. Often I will be gone six, eight, ten hours because, for example, someone I've been staying with was sick all, all last week. And so I just wanted to be out of the house as much as possible to minimize the chances of getting sick. So, you know, I'd be gone 12 hours. Now, I wouldn't necessarily be walking that whole time, but, yeah, I'm, I'm gone. Now, my, my socializing, I don't put that on video and I don't talk about it. So when I go to someone's home for a meal and I meet up with a friend for lunch or for dinner, uh, when I meet someone on my walk and we, and we have a, a you know, strong conversation, uh, I usually don't talk about those things. And I certainly don't, you know, live stream them. Yeah. So when you go for a long walk, do you mm -hmm. always have audio on? Are you always listening to something or do you ever just walk without any other external stimuli? Yeah, I would say about half the time, somewhere between 50 to say 60% of the time, I'm listening to something and probably, you know, a third of the time I'm not. Okay. So this is an experiment. Do you ever try? I find like if I go for a long walk and I don't have any external stimuli, the first 30 minutes or so are kind of hard, right? Mm -hmm. But then after that, there's a certain like quieting that goes on, you know? And then like my yeah. internal focus becomes stronger and my insights become sharper. And the longer it goes on, sort of like the deeper and the better quality of my uh, thinking becomes and problems just kind of resolve themselves. And there's just no shortcut to it, but it, it, it has to, it has to work like that. You have to sort of go over this wall of boredom first before you can start to reap the, the real benefits. Yeah. I think that's, that's profound. And I, I think that's true. And I, I do get that on the Sabbath. So it's not, infrequent that I oh. walk three, five, ten miles on the Sabbath and there's zero electronica going on the Sabbath. That's interesting. Okay, that's right. I forgot you do that. That's probably, you know, I should do something like that. But I, I want to, just just because it's come up, you bring up that topic. I want to um, have a little JQ conversation with you, Luke. Yeah. You being the expert and all. So I remember when I lived in Boston, you know, I lived like like a mile from Harvard Square and You'd just sort of, uh, you'd always hear sort of all the sort of the campus gossip going on and all the scandals would make the news. And there was this particular scandal where, um, you know, the dorm rooms, to get into the dorm, you had to slide a, you have to slide like a, a magnetic card into some kind yes. of slot yes. to unlock the door, yep. right? But that was not kosher. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. On the Sabbath. A, yes. You can't do that, right? Because it yes. creates a spark, and so <clears throat> all of the dorms had all the doorways into the dorms had to be propped open with chairs. Yeah. Right to accommodate the need for the Orthodox. Yes. Uh, to not have to swipe the card. Yeah. And to me, that was the first time I thought, well. You know, that could really start to rub the feathers of some non-Jews. Yes. And. Yes. 
Yes, is it necessary? Right. Was it really necessary, or is that is that just like a, an exaggerated reading of the rules, right? Just to make a point, is that just to sort of stick your finger in the eye of the goys? Why do the rules have to be uh, observed to that level, right? It just seemed excessive to me and uh, unnecessarily provocative. Okay, so there was a debate in Orthodox Judaism about whether or not electricity is fire. And because you're activating electricity when you're running that electronic card through, that's why you, you can't do that on the Sabbath from an Orthodox Jewish perspective. And so the majority decision is that electricity is fire. And so by going with that majority decision, you can understand the greater amount of peace and serenity you provide for a community and for the individual if you abide by that. But it also comes at a price, and that is you're making Jews look bad in front of non-Jews, and you're creating aggravation for non-Jews. And so there are rabbis who will overturn Jewish law at times if the opprobrium that is being generated by observance of a particular law becomes excessive. So, for example, example, Samson Raphael Hirsch in the 19th century, he did away with the Kol Nidre service, which is a classic service that you say on the, the eve of Yom Kippur, where you ask God to release you from all commitments that you've made between you as an individual and God. But it is interpreted by many Jew, Jewish critical people as saying that Jews can't be trusted because they're, they're praising God from releasing all commitments. Now, the service is about really God releasing from commitments you make to him alone, not, not commitments that you make to your fellow man. But because Kol Nidre was being seized upon by people who didn't like Jews and was used as a hammer to, to beat Jews, this particular Orthodox rabbi did away with a classic form of the, the Jewish prayer service. And so I think you're right. There are a lot of Jewish practices that rub non-Jews the wrong way. And so the more sophisticated and aware Orthodox rabbi is going to be you know, more alert of are you making Judaism look dumb or stupid or are you giving people reasons to have negative views of Jews? And sometimes that should override observance of a particular law. Yeah, yeah, this seems to be. Mm. So the, the use of a Shabbos Goy, for example, to have mm. a non-Jew turn on the, the air conditioning or the heating or to make a fire for you or to do all sorts of things that a Jew is not supposed to do on the Sabbath. That makes Orthodox Jews and Judaism look really stupid to non-Jews, but it makes life as an observant Jew a lot easier. So how do you balance you know, your own comfort versus you're making Jews and Judaism stink in the eyes of non-Jews? Yeah, but this particular example was like so minor, you know, like it's one thing just like to eat pork, but, was, but this was just like so on the other end of the spectrum. It's, um, it just seemed like a really easy accommodation to make. And I don't know. Well, once you, but, once you describe, once you decide that electricity is fire, then this inevitably follows from that. And don't you see that there are a lot of advantages to to forbidding starting or stopping electrical current on, on the Sabbath, you do carve out more of a sacred space. Like the, the Sabbath experience is substantially different when you can't generate or stop an electrical current. Right. Well, then... Uh, okay. I don't know. Okay. You're right. I guess 
I guess. I guess it's just it's just part of the thing that it, it's like one of those examples of rules that just seem to have nothing to do with spirituality whatsoever, and but they're they're elevated to the status of having lots to do with spirituality, and it, it just it makes. It makes the whole presentation just seem weird and incoherent. Well, does not all religion look weird and incoherent from the outside? I mean, are there like vast swaths of Christianity that look weird and incoherent, vast swaths of Islam, vast swaths of any religion, that they all look incoherent at best from the outside? Uh... To varying degrees, I suppose. Um, I, have to, I have to give it some more time. I mean, I mean which, which religions look uh, you know, rational and compelling to you from the outside? I mean, uh, just like nationalism. I think you know, nationalism generally looks stupid to someone who isn't a nationalist, but, but particularly religion. Like any other religion, if you actually believe in your religion, or forget you you don't believe you, you have no belief. Like when religion gets in the news, it's usually for something either horrible or dumb or stupid or appalling. Like how often is religion in the news for something you know uplifting and and good and and rational sounding? It's like it generally speaking, when religion comes to our attention, it's because of so, something that looks really stupid and unappealing. Uh, that's true. That's true. Um, hmm. we're going down a road. I don't have any, I haven't done enough thinking about this, anything, uh, useful. Um, but as I was just looking at like, you know, uh, ways to resolve this whole, uh, JQ thing. <laughs> There couldn't be better relations. They were actually possible, or it's just, it's just part of the human condition. And this is just always going to be an annoyance. Always going to be a touchy subject that needs to be addressed. And eventually, there's going to be Kanye's that flare up. And right. Uh, on the other hand, I think Jews are the only group of which I'm aware who's maintained a distinct identity as a minority for 2,500 years. So. To maintain that distinct identity, you have to do things and think things that are different from the majority. On the other hand, to survive, you you know can't be ticking off the majority too intensely. So there's there's a tricky road here. You don't want a minority to abandon everything that's distinctive or weird about it. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you want to minimize disruption and you know, negative feelings with the majority. Yeah. I guess, I guess there's central and peripheral, and I think you really have to hold on to the central. But some things, I don't know. I guess you can. It feels like I guess I'm just a you know wishy-washy Californian who who doesn't do well with too many rigid rules. Yeah, and and someone who's not raised with a lot of religious law, it's very, very difficult to become a person in a religion filled with law. And I say that as someone who was raised a Protestant, converted to Orthodox Judaism. It's 
very difficult to, to, to move towards a more regulated life, a more legal life, a more legally constricted life. It's not an easy direction. It's much easier to move from a regulated life to a freer life. That's true. That's true. It's much easier to go down a mountain than up a mountain. Yeah, I, I mean, traditional <laughs> Judaism is is on a practical basis the most religious, the most difficult religion, the practice of which I'm aware, because it's placing you, you know, frequently in conflict with the way the world in in all these practical ways. Like yeah. it makes it, it makes it very difficult to eat and, and drink with with non Jews to begin with. Mm, yeah. Um. So, so for example, for many Christians, becoming more Christian is expanding their lives. But the more Jewish you become, the more restricted your life. Yeah. I mean, does does observing these rules? What if observing these rules made you a worse person? Well, certainly it does. For some people, observing these rules makes you a worse person. and But at the same time, do you acknowledge that observing these rules makes some people better? Right, right. So It depends on the person and the situation. Yeah. But um, it just seems like you should observe the rules that make you a better person and discard the rules that make you a worse person. Right. Maybe the more common sense view. Yeah. But no, no in group can, can uh, propagate with that perspective. Like if you, you know, publicly proclaim to members of your in group, Hey, just, just keep those traditions and rituals and laws that uh, make you a better person and don't sweat the rest that's not a formula for propagation. Now, it's it's good advice on an individual basis, but it, it can't be the modus operandi of your in-group because people will just do what's easiest. Now, that is the way people operate. Even Orthodox Jews operate. Like, Orthodox Jews don't observe every single law. They basically observe those laws that are most amenable to them, and they don't observe those laws which are most difficult for them. And now what's amenable and what's difficult depends on how closely you live within an Orthodox Jewish community. So obviously the more more tightly and closely you're integrated into an Orthodox Jewish community, the more you're going to need to follow the law. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the advantage of that is that there's very little discussion about theology or belief. So in Orthodox Jewish life, I can talk to you know Orthodox Jews about almost any topic I want because the focus is on behavior. It's not on feelings and it's not on beliefs. So you can be honest about what you're feeling and you can be honest in discussing ideas because the focus of the community is on behavioral observance. So... You don't find Jews racked by guilt nearly as much as Christians, and you don't find Jews racked by theological controversies, and you find Jews tend to be much more blunt and emotional and wear their feelings on the sleeve and you know open about what's going on with them and what they want uh, compared to, say, evangelical Christians. 
so okay there's guilt and shame right one of them is imposed on from the outside and one is what you feel from the inside so which is which well they're 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 both really imposed from the outside so for example someone who feels like they committed murder when they had an abortion that's really only someone who spent considerable time in the united states like that to the best of my knowledge that does not occur outside the united states but in the united states there's a substantial movement to equate abortion with murder so Guilt is what you when you feel bad for something you've done. Shame is when you feel bad for something you are. But they are both essentially uh, programmed into us from the outside. And it's just that the healthy you I, I are. I don't believe the, that. Oh, go ahead. I believe. You know, I I believe those feelings arise from you know, sincere introspection. You see the results of what you've done and the impact it has on other people, and then you feel bad about it. That comes from within. I don't believe that Give me an example. Give me an example. You feel bad because, let's say, you gossiped about someone and it did them harm. And so you introspect and, and you feel bad. But that that moral standard, you know, don't gossip about people, your friends in a way that does them harm. That's an externally socially reinforced principle. You wouldn't have that principle if it was just you, but you've gotten so much external feedback on it that you've, you've internalized that, but it still comes from the outside and you've then internalized it. Well, let's say, all right. So someone, if I gossip about somebody, you know, have my fun with it, and then I later learn that I've been gossiped about and I feel bad about it, that eventually I'm going to connect the two, right? And say, you know, what's good for the goose, what's good for the gander upon introspection, right? So, yes, there is societal opprobrium associated with gossip. At the same time, that's because societies have observed this and sort of... Uh, uh, um, um, engrave this into the culture just so that people could bypass that painful learning experience, right? That's the whole purpose of tradition is to sort of give you a head start on some of the life's most painful lessons so that you don't have to experience them directly. That's why traditions create rules, rules to avoid you getting into some really serious trouble. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, and so that is, you know, something in society that you've internalized, but we we depend upon society. Almost everything that we think and feel comes from society. Huh. Okay, so... I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure I agree. I'm not saying... Uh, you, you might be right. Um... Because if you like, you watch these criminals, right? I've talk. I was telling you about all these criminal mm-hmm. interviews I've been doing, and they had no sense that what they were doing was wrong or that it harmed other people, right? They just they were they just simply other people were means to an end, and that they had feelings was completely not not a consideration for them. So in a sense, I guess maybe you're right. So these people were just not cultured enough. No, they had a particular physiology that does not take 
that whereby other people are simply means, not not ends. So there's something physiological and something in their upbringing that, that caused them to have a you know an unfeeling attitude towards people outside of themselves. Yeah. Um, but now we have with this woke stuff, it's sort of like an extension of this principle that allows the collective to sort of reach into your conscience and sort of manage your thoughts. Like what you think about homosexual marriage or not is actually a matter for the collective and not the individual. Um, yeah, there, there wouldn't like, be any liberalism without this educating, bullying impulse, you know, this improving, bullying, educating impulse. You know, that's like the, the heart of left uh, liberalism. They're always wanting to educate us out of our bigotry and traditional ignorant ways. Yeah, so do you do you believe that this wokeism is just an extension of Christianity? Yeah, it's an extension of Protestant Christianity. So Protestantism did away with the law and it, it did away with rituals and it essentially did away with holy days and holy spaces. And it, it then turned them into the individual's cognitive, emotional, psychological experience so that you're no longer supposed to, you know, feel lust in your heart. You're you know, no longer supposed to, you know, walk around in an ungodly state it, it, you know, it's wanting to impose a, a discipline uh, on the individual that was basically unknown prior to Protestantism. So it mm. comes, yeah, in particular from Protestant Christianity, because Catholic Christianity and Judaism is is primarily about rituals and behavior and belonging to a community, but uh, Protestantism comes along and tries to develop a whole new individual who has this individual relationship with God and who is, you know, consistently aligned with God. And so the way I was raised as a Protestant that you, know, you don't swear because that shows you're out of alignment with God. Well, and okay. It's like a so, secularized version of that. So why, uh, why do Protestants create such, you know, desirable societies compared to Catholic societies? I mean, not that Catholic societies are particularly bad, but the the social uh the our expectations for fair play are so high in protestant societies compared to others right yeah and that seems to be a very positive aspect of protestantism or, or it's yes. a, it's a very desirable fruit of protestantism and so is that because because yeah. it develops an incredibly disciplined self, right? Because you're mm. always thinking about how do I affect other people? Mm. And it creates, yeah. And so the, the more elite you are, the more disciplined you are, right? You know, the less likely you are to make, you know, racist jokes or to say mm. bigoted things because you're consistently thinking about what would, you know, what message would this send to the wide world? You know, how will this affect other people? Why the conservative the traditionalist, you know, sits at home. He thinks, you know, my home's my castle. You know, I can say or do what I like in my own home. I can, you know, I can carry on and say and do what, what I think is right. And I don't have to be hamstrung by, you know, all the implications about, you know, how someone on the other you know, side of the globe might interpret what I'm doing. So it, it's, it's a, 
traditional sense of self versus the you know the modern secularized version of Protestantism, which is you know incredibly disciplined. So you think about you know liberal left elites. You know they're not going out there, generally speaking, getting monkeypox and AIDS. Generally speaking, mm-hmm. they're married. They've got kids. They've got six-figure incomes. They're law-abiding. They lead highly, highly disciplined lives, even though they are intellectually committed to you know all sorts of deviant things. But for, for them, there's, there are things like you know ethical BDSM. From, from a trap perspective, you know ethical BDSM seems silly. But yeah. when you you know you develop that level of reflexivity and self-discipline, you can you know try to practice ethical BDSM. So Ann Coulter pointed out there are, I think, there are no Protestants on the Supreme Court. Right, because Protestantism is not a legal religion. So Catholicism and Judaism are legal religions, so it would make sense that there'd be far more great legal thinkers coming from Catholicism and Judaism, even in their secularized versions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, we went off into some high IQ topics. I don't know if I'm I'm definitely going to be able to keep up. Um, so, like you know, you know, I grew up in New England, and it was like I think about all of the people that were, um, you know, pillars of the community, and the world that they inhabited then, or that I inhabited, their world in which I inhabited, is so far from the Kanye world. <laughs> You know, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I just, Kanye would be inconceivable. Um, I remember when rap was really rare, right? It wasn't full spectrum yeah. dominance. It was, it was rare. It was quirky. It had this sort of niche appeal and it never really appealed to me. Um, but it, yeah, it the does first rap song to... I remember is, you know, walk this way, talk this way. Is that Beastie Boys? No, that's Aerosmith. You know who oh, one of the first yeah, rappers yeah. was? In a pop song? Okay. Blondie. Oh. Remember Blondie? The, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Call uh, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call but, me. You know, we walk real far and they eat the people meat. You know that song? I forgot okay. the name. <laughs> but ironically enough, Blondie was one of the first rappers, which is amusing. But... We had a slur for it, which I can't repeat here. Yes, but it was um, it was indicative of how it was initially received. Hey, have <laughs> you noticed empirically in real life that Christians tend to feel much more guilt and shame than Jews do? I mean, there's a lot of talk about Jewish guilt, but I, I don't see it nearly as much among Jews as I do among Christians. I it's a good question because. <clears throat> I think Jews feel a certain, a lot of interpersonal guilt. Like if they wrong you, they slight you, um, they become aware of it and apologize for it and they feel bad about it. That's generally been my experience Mm -hmm. with Jews in offices. Um, um, I can't say I see a lot of evidence of Christian guilt, maybe. But aren't the Catholics the one that are always feeling all the guilt? 
I don't know that many Catholics, but I know a lot of Protestants who suffer from what seems to me excessive guilt and shame. See, I thought Protestants had a more rebellious spirit and they were the ones able to do things like create businesses and things because they weren't so, uh, you know, bound by, yeah. yeah, they weren't bound by like sort of the rules opposed on them by the collective. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm inadvertently sounding more big brained than I actually am. So, um, uh, Food for thought, for sure. Okay, okay, great. Uh, any any final words for today, Elliot? No, I think I think that's not. I think, yeah. Okay, hours enough, Luke. Okay, right. Great to talk to All you. Right. All right. Okay. Peace. Shalom. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. And so I don't think they will be able to do it. Um, you could definitely argue that you know Kanye didn't articulate things Wait, in that's with this. You know, I love all people. But especially Nazis or whatever exactly he said. It was, it was. So this is uh, Richard Spencer on the kill stream with Ethan Ralph about uh, ten days. Ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I think this was an historical event in the sense. Oh, question in the chat: Do do Christians feel more guilt and Jews more shame? Now, in my experience, Christians feel a lot more guilt and shame than Jews do. Most Jews feel pretty good about themselves. Like God's chosen people, they they tend to have a level of, of confidence and uh, self, self-assurance that is you know, very high. It's kind of similar to blacks in, in that respect. Notice that you know, blacks and Jews both tend to enjoy high levels of self-esteem. That this, this was a, a happening, a moment that everyone's going to have to address. I think the GOP is going to run away from it. I, I think they're... This idea that everyone's going to have to address what Kanye West is doing, I... I think that's vastly exaggerated. I have a hard time denouncing it because by denouncing it. Why would the GOP have a hard time denouncing this? I don't see that, right? Individual members of the GOP like spoke out for Kanye and they now might need to retract that. But I, I don't see how on earth GOP in general, conservatives in general, would have a hard time you know, denouncing what, strikes most people who pay any attention to what's going on with Kanye West, you know, incredibly self-destructive, anti-social downward spiral. They're in, in a way denouncing all of their voting base. And so I don't think they- This idea that all of the Republican voter base is essentially aligned with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes strikes me as absolutely ludicrous. It will be able to do it. Um, you could definitely argue that, you know, Kanye didn't articulate things in the best way possible. But I don't know, you, it's never going to be perfect. I think sometimes they're just these moments where... This idea that Kanye is not articulating things in the best way possible and it's never going to be perfect, that has nothing to do with, I think, with you know, Kanye's downward spiral. And normally you know, taking in what Kanye West has been saying and doing is going to be appalled. Like a new dawn arises or, or, or like there's a portal to a new universe. There's just, there's just a moment when things... Yeah, so that's... Fascinating and compelling and dramatic to say, but no, I, I don't think this Kanye West downward spiral is a portal to a new universe. Now, I, I could be absolutely wrong, and I'm sure a lot of people who you know, resonate with what Kanye is saying believe this. I'm highly skeptical. Dramatically change, and more things are possible. And um, I think we might have witnessed that last night. It was pretty incredible. Now, what about the media fallout? We were. Yeah, I, I don't think all things are possible. I think fewer things are possible. When you get these deranged rants by celebrities, or when you get 
you know, the alt-right getting more and more media attention, fewer things become possible. But then there's more and more pressure to restrict speech. So my opinion is the opposite here from what Richard We're just said. watching a clip with uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, of course, and, you know, the Hitler, the Hitler commentary uh, has obviously got them fired up. You don't well, see Well, yeah, I mean, you can... Yeah. The ADL is going to get a little uh, angsty when you start talking about your love for Hitler. Uh, Did you hear what, at one point he goes, Germany had a really cool leader one time. Did you? Right. Well, first off, to give him credit, because I, I think all of this has to be understood in terms of Christianity. It's not even Christian nationalism. It's Christian. Okay, this is a fascinating point, And on the face of it, it seems absolutely absurd. I, I don't think what's primarily motivating and driving Kanye West is Christianity. Thing was primarily motivating and driving Kanye West is a desire for attention because his normal human connections have you know, diminished, such as he's getting divorced. But I think he's using Christianity to get attention, to try to find a socially acceptable way of you know, grabbing attention. So it strikes me that uh, it's not so much Christianity working through Kanye West, it's Kanye West you know, using Christianity for his own attention-seeking means. Christianity emerging in its full glory or maybe kind of insanity, but it it is what it is. So from a... The idea that Kanye West is Christianity emerging in its full glory or insanity, just that strikes me as insane, right? You don't see Christian clergy saying, yeah, Kanye West, he's, he's the one preaching the true gospel. Christian standpoint, you do love Hitler. You love... Jeffrey Dahmer, you you want them to be saved, in fact. And it's actually not right to demonize or hate those people or think that they're beyond redemption. Because from a Christian perspective, you are beyond redemption. You know, you are... Okay, now that is a good point. All right? So yes, from a traditional Christian perspective, we are all beyond redemption. It's only through the grace of God that uh, you know, we have the opportunity for salvation. So... One of the things that I've objected to with Nick Fuentes, who I generally find quite amiable, pleasant guy, I don't generally find him as you know somebody who's who's driven by by hatred, but you know he he has you know gone off in some you know, deranged ways uh, about the Talmud in, in specific. So there's this one very very common criticism about Judaism and about the Talmud that is just completely bogus. And that is this idea that the Talmud, you know, permits sex with, you know, children under, under three. So you'll often see this accusation that like the Talmudic tractate, you know, Yavamo says, you know, sexual intercourse with a little girl is permitted if, you know, once she reaches age three, right? So Nick likes to make the case. He says this on Alex Jones that, you know, Judaism permits pedophilia and has no respect for women you know, that it generally advocates very loose sexual morals. And to anyone who knows anything about the Talmud, this is you know, completely ridiculous. I'm, I'm working off an essay here by Rabbi Gil student, but it's, it's at accords with, you know, everything that I've learned from, from my years of studying the Talmud. So people who make this claim just know nothing about the Talmud. The Talmud is a shorthand recollection of oral conversations that were conducted by rabbis between say, 1,800 years ago and 1,500 years ago. And these were intimate in-group conversations that I think the rabbis participating never thought that they would be finally put down in a book. 
and that anyone can read it, right? I think this was an ongoing oral conversation that people memorized, and then it was eventually put down in written form approximately a thousand years ago or fifteen hundred years ago. But uh, I don't think the the in-group rabbis ever had the idea that you know non-Jews would ever get to hear these conversations. So anytime you have you know, highly insular in-groups conducting lively conversations, it's always going to sound, you know, bizarre at, at best to, to an outsider. So the, the Talmud is this ongoing rabbinic conversation about Jewish law and Jewish teachings and, and Jewish stories. So what goes on in these, you know, Talmudic conversations is referring here in particular to what is the appropriate dowry for virgins and non-virgins, right? It has nothing to do with what acts are allowed, encouraged, forbidden, or discouraged. So until recently, it was expected that when a woman gets married, she brings with her a dowry, and her virginity has, in almost all traditional societies, been something of greater worth. And so someone who comes as a virgin, as opposed to not a virgin, right, has you know, greater worth. And so if a woman was, or a girl was, you know, inflicted with sex against her consent when she was age four, that's very sad. And it reduces, or it increases the amount of dowry that she needs to bring because she's being damaged by rape. So most traditional societies regard, you know, prospective bribes, uh, brides as damaged by, by rape. So these conversations in the Talmud about, you know, how, you know, if a three-year-old or a five-year-old, you know, has, has had, you know, sex inflicted on her, it's to do with, you know, what is the size of the dowry that's then necessary is if someone's inflicted with, with, you know, sexual intercourse before the age of three, they can still be considered a virgin, but after age three, they are no longer considered a virgin as regards a dowry. So a virgin is entitled to a higher dowry, not just in traditional Judaism, but in all sorts of traditional societies. And so the telltale sign of virginity is the release of blood due to the breaking of the hymen on, on the wedding night. But there are many occasions when the hymen has already been broken, such as when the woman suffers an injury, right? It doesn't just happen from, from rape. So this is the context of the Talmudic discussion here. So a sexual act between a male adult and a female under the age of three is not considered a loss of virginity. It's certainly child abuse. It's certainly heinous. But these discussions are going on with regard to a dowry. So someone under three is too young for a hymen to be broken, so she's still considered a virgin. Now, nowhere is the Talmud permitting or endorsing this heinous behavior. So sex outside of marriage is strictly forbidden in Orthodox Judaism. This is an obvious case of, of child abuse. The Talmud is only discussing ex post facto what would happen you know, if such abuse occurred. So this claim that the Talmud and that normative Judaism permits sexual relations with a minor is you know, virtually entirely incorrect. The slight truth in it is that in certain societies in history, people were sometimes married down to about an age of 10, such as in Tsarist Russia to avoid being drafted into the Tsar's army, which would make life incredibly difficult for Jews. And it wasn't just like a one or a four year term, you were drafted into the Tsar's army effectively for life. So in certain extreme circumstances, yeah, Jews would legally get, get married at, down to about the age of, of 10. 
but even in these cases, marriage is required before having sexual relations. And even like if people in these extreme situations got married at age 10, 11, or 12, doesn't mean that they had sex then at 10, 11, or 12. Often they would wait until 18. So Judaism prohibits sexual relations outside of marriage, even holding hands outside of marriage. Now, there are plenty of individual Jews who don't follow the teachings of Judaism or the teachings of the Talmud, just like there are many Catholics who choose to use birth control and they have premarital relations, even though their religion forbids it. But uh, Nick would just you know, pile on these absolutely absurd you know, claims about the Talmud because they were convenient for him. Or no, I mean, obviously... Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or worse, you know, whatever they killed people. But like you, you are a sinner. You're born in sin. You're irredeemable. You're Russia. All, all of you from Jeffrey Dahmer to Hitler to Ralph to me, we have to put our faith in Christ. So in that he meant it in that sense, but then he kind of took it a step further and basically said, it's cool. And so he has, there is both that Christianity aspect in it, but then there's this kind of new level of kind of touching the untouchable and getting at that energy that still exists within you know, fascism, let's say. I mean, what, the, the way I was thinking, <laughs> excuse me, the way I would think about it is that, you know, if you went to your local grocery store wearing a red shirt with a hammer and sickle on it, I bet you might get a, you might get a look or two, but probably maybe those are kind of an old timer. It's like, we beat the commies. But mostly people would see that as almost like nostalgic or kind of like a cool t-shirt, you know, vintage or whatever. If you walked in with a red t-shirt with the swastika on it, I mean, boy, you would get looks. I mean, people would freak out. They might call You would the probably get a look or two, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Kanye West is an IQ around 130, right? So a lot of people think he's a moron. I don't believe that. I believe he's very intelligent. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not recommending that anyone do this, but what that recommends, what, what that um, reveals is that there is a kind of energy... In so why is Richard Spencer still appearing on Wignap podcast? Because generally speaking, those are the ones that want him on. Right? He's not getting a lot of invites onto ABC News or CNN. In there, an almost sacred energy in the swastika that it's so hated. It's treated so negatively. It's like the, the center of the liberal morality is don't be Hitler. So it's, there's so much like invested in it that it weirdly becomes sacred and becomes powerful. That is a fascinating point. And I think he's absolutely right about that. So Kanye West is live right now. This Let's is see like the clubhouse saying. birthday. Literally. 1235. I'm I don't know yeah, enough that's... about God yet. I'm told this all the time. But uh, the uh, but uh, back to what we're saying uh, on the death penalty. There's some, I got a letter yesterday from a, from a, um, a white gentlemen because uh apparently i uh, white lives i guess don't matter but this is a white gentleman because i said white lives matter and all of a sudden i got four uh stadium shows canceled i had uh what's the place uh where the rams play you know i was gonna make that my living room for like you know a couple nights and they uh you know they you know how i do because i put a bed in the middle go to sleep and people watch it you know so <laughs> So, you know, I was, was going to make the stadium my living room for a little bit. And um, and then I wore the White Lives Matter T-shirt. And apparently uh, I didn't know. I didn't know White Lives didn't matter. So the so I wore the T-shirt and it, it's interesting because a, a white gentleman wrote a letter to me from prison and just talking about Billy McGill, how he was wrongfully you. accused, how he was living a normal life in college. And they got all of this evidence uh, and he's still locked up. So let's get to death penalty. Not only can people be 
wrongfully accused with our judicial system people could be wrongfully executed <sighs> so until until we take the time to really we don't have any examples we don't have any strong substantial factual basis for belief that anyone has been wrongfully executed in the united states for 60 years plus really check the dna and put the you know put uh, people with Christian values. Now, I, I'm, I'm tired of this moral compass conversation because it'd be people that's like, uh, Productions. hey, Appreciate you know, you. I'm a good person and, you know, I'm in a different place. My, I'm in a different place. Me and God, we got a good relationship. That ain't no good relationship. You just don't want to listen to him. That's not a good relationship. Oh, I got a good relationship with God. No, you don't. You up here not trying to listen to God, right? And these are the kind of people that are setting our laws with the corrupt system, right? So then we're going to have a death penalty. We got to remove certain things. Like people will ask me, like, obviously, you know, I'm pro-life, life period. Life from, you know, from pro-life on uh, babies being born to no death penalty, but also, you know, we can't immediately apply any kind of laws to abortion. And I know... Uh, so, question to Chad. Uh, are blacks the real Jews? This is what Kanye believes. No, I don't think that's true. And we can check people genetically. For example, Kohanim. Most Jews named Cohen are part of a you know a distinctive you know genetic imprint, as opposed to say for Russian Jews, Jews you know the supposed Jews from Ethiopia, they show you know nothing in common with other Jews in the world. There's no genetic evidence that the Russian Jews are really Jews. So there is you know there are distinct you know, DNA imprints for for Jews. You know, they are a distinct people. Historically, they were called the, the Jewish race, and there's just you know no evidence that uh, blacks from West African origins are you know, Jewish, as you know people like the the Hebrew Israelites claim. Uh, all my writers are going to be like, "Wait, what are you talking about?" Until we present an alternative, because people who go to get these abortions feel that there's no alternative. Ain't like people don't just not. No, people go to get abortions because it's the easiest alternative. Right? It's not because they're completely unaware of, of any other option. It's because it's the easiest thing to do. That people choose easy. Actually not want to have their children. We are put into places where we never got our reparations. We're put in boxes. We're gerrymandered. And we don't feel like we have no other opportunities. So before I step into the monastery... Yeah, so all nationalism depends significantly on a sense of victimization. This is true for... Black nationalism, white nationalism, Jewish nationalism, right? Every nationalism contains a substantial claim of victimization, which provides much of the energy and the fuel for the nationalism. And this thing that God has set on my heart, like it's, like it's Noah's Ark right here. We got to say in the judicial system, I got to learn a bit about the judicial system when I was getting debanked and sued and attempted to be bankrupt. You know, Ari Emanuel, he thought he had me, bro. You know, I can't listen. <laughs> He's just okay. I just, uh, I just don't find him particularly coherent. So yeah, I prefer to listen to an analysis of Kanye West rather than Kanye West himself. But I guess I should try to play some. This is 
Kanye, Alex Jones. This is InfoWars, right? So you got some Info Warriors on both sides of you, and you fought for us. You've been fighting this battle for a long time, Alex, and we just got to salute you as a Christian and as American because you paved the way to make braver soldiers like us today. It's like Terminator Part 10 happening right now. first leader, and that is Nick Fuentes, Ali Alexander, Owen Schroyer, and many others are also going to be coming through here today. And Ye has uh, arrived in uh, a, a new ensemble uh, here with us, but I'll assure you it is uh, Ye. Ye, thank you so much for coming to Austin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, where would you like to start? This first little five-minute segment uh, is, is, is just kind of a prelude to what's coming up. What do you want to cover here today? This God runs the world, and Jesus is the way and the life, and it's time to put Jesus first in the way that we run our businesses, the way we, the way we run our. Gosh, how hateful is that? You know, we, we need to put God first and Jesus first. My God, uh, it's hateful rhetoric. Families, our businesses, and the way we run our country. You're for radio listeners, run over 400 radio stations. They, they can't see you right now. You're, you're, you, this is a new look for you. Oh, no, I've been wearing a mask for a while. Ah, yeah. Well, this is an archetypal example of the mask is off by putting the mask on. People could take it how they how they want to take it. It's just, you know, it's interesting if you look at a Michael Jordan or something. You load up all these pictures and he's smiling and he's holding a basketball. He's jumping from the free throw line. So to me, this is freaky. He's wearing a full face you know, mask, and it seems to me just another example of a desperate cry for, for help and a desperate cry for attention. And then you look at um, uh, Phil Knight, and you barely can see a picture of him, and he's got his face covered. So. I don't have to show my face. It's me. That's my, that's my right. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, that's what Hollywood wants to do though, is to control everybody through images. Exactly. So I'm in control of my image now. It's no longer the people that froze my account. It's no longer the people that threatened me. We've got past the threats. They tried to throw me in jail for the truth. And, you know, people believe me and people see that I wasn't crazy on what I was talking about. And they tried to write it off and they keep trying to write it off. But the truth is the more and more I'm faithful to, to Christ, the more and more he's going to keep un, unlocking the blessings. You know, he said it on my heart to build communities, to build farms, to build schools, to build the choir. And but when you do that, you have to be really obedient. Hey, guys, could you not talk in the back? I'm like really hypersensitive to sound. If you guys want to talk, just go in another room, please. Um, but we have to be really obedient. You know, like one of the big topics right now is all of the pedophilia advertisement. And my take on that is, you know, there's, there's one place in the Bible where it says God sees sin differently. And there's another place where it says, uh, yeah, let me get out my phone. I can like really pull up the exact thing it says in the Bible. The general gist, and we'll get back to it after the five minute break, is that you have to uh, stay strict to everything and remove as much sin as possible in order to serve God. And I remember the one time Dennis Prager called me at home and I was like so excited. And I said, you know, Dennis, you inspired me. And I've decided I'm going to live my life for God. And uh, Dennis, this was this was like 1990, uh, the summer of 1990. And uh, Dennis said, "Well, you know, try to be moderate about it. <laughs> don't be a don't be a wacky extremist." And the, the human being is not naturally moderate. You know, I'm lucky that the person I put on a pedestal, my, you know, my hero, my mentor, was a you know, pretty moderate guy, Dennis Prager. So, Washington Post says Kanye West hates spewing career tanking dissent through the old media. You know, obviously this comes from a particular perspective. So if you love something, you're going to sound hateful towards that which threatens it. So Kanye 
espouses that he loves Jesus, loves, loves Christianity, and so he's going to sound hateful to that which threatens it. In the end, it wasn't CNN, New York Times, or Washington Post that exposed Ye's explicit anti-Semitism. So another way that you could describe Ye's explicit anti-Semitism is that he, he holds beliefs about Jews that were very common among tens of millions of Christians prior to World War II. So he holds the common pre-World War II Christian beliefs about Jews, right? So he's a traditional Christian to some extent. So it wasn't the traditional celebrity media that uh, has previously exposed the troubling behavior of the rich and famous. So Kanye West incinerated his career. Well, he may be launching a brand new career, right? So one perspective is he's incinerating his old career, but often you have to burn something down to build something new while on a two-month tour through the old media swamps. Like, why is the old media necessarily any more of a swamp than the Washington Post, the LA Times, New York Times? It's a different type of swamp. But uh, saying that old media is a swamp is just purely a matter of perspective and, and value judgment. It's not something objective. A collection of podcasts and streaming shows that tend to mimic the mainstream media's aesthetics while disdaining its journalistic standards. Maybe... That's not the fairest way of putting it. Maybe many alternative shows have different standards, such as letting people speak, right? You don't need to homogenize discourse as much on alternative shows. So maybe it's not so much a matter of disdaining mainstream media journalistic standards. Maybe you've got different standards, such as allowing people to speak, right? That, to me, strikes me as a different standard, not necessarily inferior to mainstream media standards. The gatekeepers of the alternative media universe, including conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and media bashing podcast Tim Poole, invited Ye to their programs after his early remarks about Jews made in persona non grata to the general public two months ago. Many of these personalities broadcast his anti-Semitic rants with minimal pushback or even encouragement, accelerating the 24-time Grammy winner's descent to pariah status. Another way of expressing this, which would be equally accurate, is that alternative media allows Kanye West to speak without bullying him, without shutting him down, without censoring him. So they encourage the virtue of free speech. So it's not like there's only virtue on the side of mainstream media, and then when it comes to Alternative media, this is just, you know, dirty, filthy swamp. There are different virtues in different places. That's why I consume some alternative media and some mainstream media. Ye, who has spoken about struggling with bipolar disorder. So just because you're struggling with bipolar disorder, that does not necessarily discredit you, right? We, we all struggle with different things. So one thing that the media should be struggling with is how they seem to uniformly adopt the same emotional tone with regard to leading stories. So this same story could have been written on CNN or Fox News or the LA Times or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Has slowly been alienating his fans for years through his antics, as opposed to audience capture, right? So a lot of people who are celebrities become captured by the audience and they go out of their way never to alienate their audience. So it's not like alienating your audience or being captured by your audience that either approach is inherently right. right? 
you can alienate your audience by saying painful truths. Right? I have this self-conception that I frequently alienate my audience by saying painful truths. Right? So there's nothing superior or inferior inherently in either alienating or comforting your audience. Through his antics, rambling remarks, and flirtations with racist ideologies. Maybe he's been challenging, you could maybe you could accurately say he's been challenging his audience with perspectives and behavior that is generally considered inappropriate, wrong, or or evil. His recent bids for president have been mostly treated as a joke. That seems uh, reasonable. He preluded this spree of anti-Semitism in early October when he wore a White Lives Matter shirt at a Paris fashion show. So is Kanye West primarily on a spree of anti-Semitism? I don't think that's the primary thing that's going on with Kanye West. He is discovering a new way of looking at the world. He's taking on a traditional Christian perspective on the world and starting to think through some of its implications. So I don't think hating Jews is the primary thing going on with Kanye West right now. His last known interview with a major news outlet and three days later with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Ye complained that Jared and Josh Kushner, both Jews, were businessmen primarily concerned with making money. When Ye asked if he was being too heavy-handed for Carlson's show, Carlson assured him, we're not in the censorship business and praised Ye for speaking so honestly and so movingly about what he believes. Fox then edited out several especially, especially toxic comments by Ye, some explicitly about Jews. Well, you know, what, what comments are toxic or, or you know, antisocial or, or bigoted? That is you know, subjective. Toxic to whom? Right? That which is toxic to one group is the bomb of life to another group. Within days of the Tucker Carlson interview, Ye began posting anti-Semitic rants on social media, including a declaration to go death con three on Jewish people. Well, Ye says that he was drinking and smoking drugs, presumably, when he made this tweet. So he also says that he's an alcoholic. So I think probably the primary thing we're seeing these days uh, is, is Ye's manifestation of alcoholism, prompting Twitter and Instagram to suspend his accounts and sponsors such as Adidas to cancel affiliations with him. Some media outlets made similar calculations. So various media outlets decided they would not air previously taped interviews. So this is not a surprise. Open bigots are rarely invited to traditional news shows without a compelling reason, such as run for public office or a criminal accusation. Again, you know, what is bigotry that is you know, subject, subjective? So in a traditional Christian society, denying that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is God or that Jesus died for your sins, that would be considered bigotry. In a traditional Muslim society, anything against the Quran or the claims of the prophet or the claims of the Islamic tradition, that would be considered bigotry. So the largest broadcast and cable news brands have settled on the argument that platforming these people is the very opposite of journalism. It gives the imprimatur of the journalist brand to false, violent, hateful ideas, spreading them further, whether or not they are effectively confronted. What we're talking about is journalism is a business, right? This is the idealistic perspective on what the mainstream media is doing. But what the mainstream media is doing could just as fully be explained from a business perspective that advertisers don't want to be associated with anti-social commentary. And so the mainstream media sanitizes their production of the news 
to fit in with what enables them to sell ads. So Ye has been going on obscure cable shows or in the alternative media where extremist views are less likely to be censored or even contested. Again, that would, what is extreme? It depends on the point of the observer. If you're a traditional Christian, someone who denies the, the Trinity is extreme. Someone who denies that Jesus is God, that person is extreme. One of his first stops was Revolt TV's Drink Champs, a hip-hop-focused streaming show. A few minutes into the interview, he began explaining how the Jewish people have owned the black voice through history. His hosts occasionally interjected with uh-uh or right. So is you know, Kanye a greater danger if he's allowed to speak in an unfiltered way? I, I'm not sure he is. Right? I, I think you should, generally speaking, allow people to speak. People are not zombies. Right? They don't hear someone like Kanye West say anti-Jewish things and then immediately switch to an anti-Jewish perspective themselves. People you know, don't receive information like a zombie bite that just immediately turns them in a, a new direction. People are only going to turn in a new direction if it's congenial with their own direction. Then uh, Kanye was interviewed by Chris Cuomo on News Nation. So Cuomo challenged... Kanye's assertions of a Jewish underground media mafia. So Jews are disproportionately influential in the mainstream media, and you could you know, paint that as some kind of underground mafia. And uh, Cuomo says, I can't give you unrestricted license to attack Jewish people. Well, would someone be given unrestricted license to attack Republicans or traditionalists or traditional Christians? Yes. So certain groups are protected other groups, it's, it's game on. You can say anything you want. So why do we protect certain groups and don't protect other groups? Good question. So the answer is that uh, you get social status for attacking some groups, such as traditional Christians and gun owners and people who want to homeschool their kids, because the liberal left controls the high grounds of our culture and dominates most of our institutions. So because of liberal left power over our institutions, it is prestigious to attack some groups and to refrain from even criticizing other groups. So Piers Morgan had on Kanye West, then Lex Friedman, and then Alex Jones. So Alex, you know, challenged challenge Kanye a little bit. So appearing on InfoWars might have seemed like a low point for Kanye. Well, it depends on your perspective. Some people would consider appearing on CNN or Fox News or NBC News or the New York Times as, as a low point. The alt media is bottomless. Yes, it is vast. On Monday, Kanye West appeared on a live stream hosted by Gavin McGuinness. McGuinness listened as his guest spewed virulent anti-Jewish tropes, or another thing you could say, probably objectively, accurately, I haven't seen the Gavin McGuinness interview, is that McGuinness allowed his guest, Kanye, to speak in a way that was normal for pre-World War II Christians. So Kanye, uh, Gavin occasionally counter-argued with Kanye that Jews weren't reproducing fast enough to be a cultural threat or that Ye's praise for Hitler would complicate his latest presidential bid. There's no inherent reason why letting someone speak and say what's on their heart is, you know, just awful or inherently good. You know, it depends on the context, depends on the situation, depends on, on the guest. Now, 
all of Ye's remarks eventually surfaced in the mainstream media that shunned him, including in this article. They continue to circulate across the entire digital media scape. So to even acknowledge this is to amplify it. Right. That's a good point at the end. Is more from when Elvis people Jones. look at pornography, when a when a grown man is looking at a grown woman have sex on camera, you're still looking at someone's daughter, and you're looking at a lot of times someone that is the product of pedophilia. So people will engage in going to strip clubs or looking at pornography, but then they the moral compass is like, oh my God, look at the pedophiles. But in a way, anybody who looks at pornography is a form of a of a pedophile also. Let's, let's bank it all in. It's very simple. We're not going to be talking about all this moral code and these standards right here. It's either Christ said so or Christ said no. Yay, power. Okay, so nothing particularly hateful except against pedophiles and pornographers so far. Right, this is pretty normative Christianity. Powerful information. I totally agree with you. Back in 60 seconds, we joined over 400 radio stations. Nick Fuentes, yeah. the studio. Everybody, tell everybody you know, tune in now. Infowars.com, sir. Okay, so I looked this up. It's about sin. That's what we're going to talk about, sin today and how we need to do everything that we can. We're, we're imperfect, but to flee, to free ourselves of sin and repent for sin throughout the day, at night, and in the morning. So right here, the Bible says right here, I'm, I know I'm going to do a um, Corinthians 2, like Trump, you know, new, new Christian kind of reading. So I, I think my self-perception is that I generally abstain from ad advocating causes because due to my own, let's say, colorful, uh, frequently degenerate life, I think I'd do more harm than good, generally speaking, if I start espousing you know, this cause, this this ideology, or this group. So it's entirely possible that you know Kanye West is doing Christianity more damage than he's you know doing benefit. So he sounds you know incredibly pious and incredibly Christian here, but uh, sometimes when you're you know, deeply flawed and people know your flaws have to reflect, is it really a good idea for me to be speaking out, you know, advocating something that when my, my own life has been so degenerate? Thing of this. So bear with me. I love Jesus, uh, but I'm not the most, you know, experienced Christian. And it says the book of Proverbs um, 6, 16 dash 19. I'm sure that's the wrong way to read it. It's OK. You got uh, the floor. OK. Identify seven things that God hates although there are not any punishments prescribed for those. Scripture clearly indicates that God does view sin differently and that he prescribed, he, he proscribed. So one of the things that Scripture says that God hates is homosexuality. So this is a whole bunch of things. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, he, that uh, God is said to hate in the Scripture is you know, men having sex with, with men. And... It, an Australian rugby player, Israel Falau, who I believe is from something like the Solomon Islands or Fiji, put, put that text on Instagram and it ended his rugby career. Like just putting that text on Instagram in connection with other you know, traditional Christian perspectives that he's shared publicly you know, got him, him banned from rugby union. It cost him millions of dollars, right? Just putting scripture, just you know, advocating what the Bible says, right? So that can end your career. What, what Kanye is doing right now, uh, you, you start putting this on social media, it can end your career. 
he proscribed a different punishment for sin depending upon its severity. Now watch this one. It says where the, f- the phrase all sins are equal in the eyes of God comes from. As far as I can tell, the most common argument for the belief that all sins are created equal comes from the book of James 2.10. It states, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs. Even though he did create Apple, and if you notice, the logo of Apple is actually the fall of man. The forbidden fruit. The bidden apple, right? So we can get into, you know, what what social media has done to families and all that. We can we got three hours, right? But I like the way our uh, our incredible American inventors like Disney and Hughes and Steve Jobs, the way they ran their companies and invented things that changed the world. And the way... Steve ran his company was his version of a sinless office. Everyone had to be so meticulous to be able to take what was 10 things at one time and make and put it in the palm of our hand. Think about an iPhone. It's your fax. It's your email. It's your phone. And now it's a thousand things. Yeah, it's your camera. So I was surprised that uh, Kanye was more articulate and more compelling than I expected. And I finally you know, watched this interview in full. Camera, it's your, uh, your flashlight. Yeah, it's like a thousand things in it. But he had to have his army go in with a sinless approach. And right now, you know, Gideon called, God called Gideon to make an army, the 300, the real 300, not the movie version, that were all focused on uh, serving this mission at the time. So we have a mission right now to save our families from social media, from Zionist control and bring whoa, whoa, Jesus whoa, Christ whoa. back to the forefront. And we're protected. You know, I don't have security. My security is the angels. My security is the fact that I didn't load up pornography last night. And I said, this addiction is going to have to flee from me. This is more articulate than I expected. Right? I'm not saying that he's articulate like a Harvard professor. This is more articulate than I expected. So I admit I had very low expectations. You know, this addiction since I was five years old that has destroyed my, my mom and my dad's family, that destroyed my family. Like when I take full accountability for the destruction, like... Of- and he's more open, he, he, he's more raw than, than I expected. So he is more compelling than I expected. Now, this isn't easy for me to watch because... Kanye West does not speak in a way that I find congenial. I don't find it pleasant listening, watching Kanye West. Of my marriage, when I when I I'll, I'll point at the liberals and say, "You took my wife from me." You know what took my wife from me? The fact that I was married to this beautiful person, but it, I felt like it wasn't enough. I felt like I still needed to look at pornography. In some way, I'd say to her, "Okay, that's incredibly raw. You know, incredibly honest. You know, incredibly candid." Well, stop making these images. Stop breaking the internet. You know that original term comes from. Yeah, he, he married someone who became famous by releasing a sex tape with a rapper. My ex-wife actually having a nude photo that I didn't know about that someone used her and put it on a magazine. But there's somewhere where she's like, well. So he, he's obviously burnt up, you know, ripped up inside by, by his divorce. And I think this you know, lack of connection with, with a person who was very important for him, he's now trying to fill that void with attention because... Uh, that's how I interpret it because I've experienced that and I've done the same thing. That when my most important connections were ripped apart, I tried to fill that hole in my soul with, with fame, with attention. Well, if my husband is looking at this, I still want to be like the girls that are doing this. And this becomes people reliving the traumas, pushing the addiction. The pornography industry is not even a big industry. It's like uh, less than $10 billion, right? So that means that it's not used. That is accurate, right? It's probably... billion a year industry. 
right? Much smaller than the news media is generally portrayed. For prosperity, it's used for disparity. It's By the way, George Orwell wrote in 1984, he'd been the number two guy in PSYOPs for OSS and, and ran propaganda for the British government, but he found out that he didn't like Hitler, but he found out that they were actually manipulated and created him. He didn't like the communists. He'd been one of them. He found out that the British intelligence had, had actually created that and done that, and he explained in 1984 that pornography is something to destroy families, destroy our souls, and get us to commit uh, he wasn't even a big Christian, but, but, but get us to debase ourselves so that they can control us. Absolutely. You got alcohol and pornography are these legal drugs. Alcohol is a spirit. I'm going to we're going to go into the spirit of Al-Kule. <laughs> Let's just go to the facts today. Let's not just even do opinions. And I love how you brought that in, because now you got God's warriors coming together right now. OK, Nick Fuentes doesn't have a Twitter account. Alex Jones doesn't have a Twitter account. But hey, guess what, Elon? I got a Twitter. And today I'm going to have Nick and Alex Tweet from my account. You like that, Ari Emanuel? Yeah, I think that uh, violates some of the terms of service of uh, Twitter. So Kanye now now banned from Twitter. Okay, I'm uh, running out of energy and I am dying to hit the beach. It's a beautiful day. It's now 12, 16 p.m. Sunday afternoon. It's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit outside. It's about 25 degrees Celsius i got to go hit the beach. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.